Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hi, I'm Rob Schneider. And I'm Kevin David Thomas. And this is Behind the Curtain, Broadway's Living Legends. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram at Broadway Curtain Podcast. Plus, you can always listen to all of our episodes, old and new, on the Broadway Podcast Network, iTunes, and Spotify. Today's guest is one of the most recognizable actors working in the United States. Yes, we have seen this tall drink of water in such TV shows as Elementary, Veep, and The Good Wife, and movies like Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, Igby Goes Down, and Die Hard with Avengers. But this past president of Actors' Equity has been a staple on the stage for over four decades. That's right. He has been seen in such shows as My Fair Lady, Very Good Eddie, Phantom of the Opera, Les Miserables, the musical comedy Murders of 1940, Network, Doubles, and Catch Me If You Can, just to name a few. And that's only a few, folks. To tell us what it was like to work with such legends as Hal Prince, Rex Harrison, Arthur Penn, Professor Irwin Corey, and Jack O'Brien, here is the author of Climbing Rejection Mountain, the one and only Nicholas Wyman. Nick, how are you today? I'm doing pretty good, Rob. How are you doing? I'm doing so good. Nick, tell us about this book. The book is sort of, um, I've been a mentor to younger actors for a, a long time, and I've also sort of like focused on the idea that it's a tough business and, you know, you never know whether you're going to make it or not, so don't give up. Um, but but also that you can improve your odds by, you know, a few techniques, a few tricks of the trade, and also just an, an approach to life that will, make, you know, serve you well, whether you're an actor or not. I mean, just in terms of like, you know, getting from one day to the next, one year to the next, and and, and feeling good about it. So that's the book. So, folks, we'll post a link for this, obviously, in the show description so you can buy a copy of it. So, Nick, let's go all the way back. Where did you grow up? And when were you first on stage? I, I was born in Maine. We lived there for like three years. But I grew up in New Jersey, about, you know, 15, 20 miles um, west of New York. And the first time, I think the first time I was on stage was uh, in seventh grade. I was playing Benedict Arnold. I, pl- I was playing villains even then. Um, right. <laughs> and, uh, uh, 
And the girl I was interested in, Nancy McEwen, played my wife. That was very, oh. very nice. Ah, and, okay. Um, and at the at the end, this was we did this like little scene or something or little playlet for uh, our history class in seventh grade. And at the end of the the thing, I die, and Nancy pulls the blanket up to cover my face. And as she pulled the blanket up to cover my face, it uncovered my feet because I was still very tall then. And we got a laugh from from the uh, from the class. And I thought, this is what I want to do for a living. <laughs> oh, I love that. Now, what did your folks do? My 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 dad was a salesman. He sold uh, carpets, and then he sort of segued into being doing marketing for carpet companies, um, and then started his own advertising agency. And then while he was over in Europe, this was sometime after my parents divorced, because um, while, while he was married to my mom, he was never successful. <laughs> so we were always, always living hand to mouth. But he, he discovered this product over in Germany that he called rug hold, which was this interstitial sort of like rubber-coated string checkerboard that you put under rugs and keeps them from, from moving around. Um, my mom was a housekeeper. But she was very smart, and when we were grown, she went back to law school. Um, oh. And uh, she became a lawyer, and uh, she was worked for a big law firm in oh. New York City, Skadden Arps, and then she became counsel for Columbia University for a while. And oh, then, my gosh. That's what she did. What was it like when you decided to you know, leave high school, go to college, and were you going to pursue acting in college? No. No, definitely not. No, I was going to be – I thought I was going to be a lawyer. Ah, college. Um, I thought I was going to go to Yale and study psychology and become a lawyer. And I went to Harvard (laughs) um, and I studied English. And I thought, after thinking for a while, I'd be a law professor. I thought, no, I'm going to be an English professor. And that was my plan. Mm -hmm. I was going to be an English professor. And then the English department at Harvard said, no, you're not going to be an English professor. Um, (laughs) In fact, you'll be lucky if you graduate. Uh, so I said, well, if it's going to be, you know, it's going to be a, a tough hill to climb back up to be in academia. I thought, well, if it's going to be so hard to be, you know, an English professor, I'll go be an actor. That sounded like more fun, but it was always going to be hard. So I thought, well, if that English professor is going to be hard, I'll go be an actor. So I, I went to acting school in uh, in New York City at the Circle in the Square, which was a one-year program at the time. I didn't want to do one of these four-year programs. So I thought, I don't want to spend four years more in school. Um and uh, while I was there, they added a second year to the program. So I stayed for a second year at Circle Square. But going there was enabled me to sort of like learn New York City and the business right. while I was business. learning my acting. And uh, and then I started working. And I've been fortunate enough to be working ever since. So Tell us a little bit about what it was like to be at Circle in the Square at this time. Who were some of your teachers, uh, any fellow students that you remember? Nico Sakharopoulos, who was the head of the Williamstown Theater Festival and a teacher at Yale. Would you tell us a little bit about him? Because I know he was so influential on so many other actors. And I think you might be the first person on our show that's had some interaction with him. Nikos, Nikos was, uh, he was a big deal mm. um, because he was the head of Williamstown. And he had worked with, you know, all these people, Blythe Danner and Frank Langella, whatever, at the beginning of their careers. <laughs> There's always this sense of like, I don't know, that we weren't quite measuring up to his... <laughs> Ah. <laughs> level of you know of of students whatever <laughs> Nikos had this habit he would, he would rub his shoulder his chest you know under his shirt like this with his one, one arm and go that's right sweetheart yes that's right um <laughs> and um he was an expert he was a whiz on Chekhov that was his um 
his sweet spot, his, uh, his bailiwick. And, uh, and so you pick your life in your hands to do a, a checkoff scene in front of him because he knew his, his stuff. He was very useful in terms of like, you know, making you specific and, and, and figuring out how to do things for real as opposed to for fake. When I was there, I was there from the fall of 72 until the spring of 74. Mm. And this was the first year that they had moved uptown. Then they took over the the space underneath next to um, what was then the Eurus Theater, now the Gershwin Theater. And uh, they had, I mean, I still remember, you know, it was, the building was brand new, brand new. I can remember that we, they just were laying the carpet, Mm. which was this, uh, um, had this pattern of, of circles and squares. And I stole a little chunk of it to make an eight by eight chessboard uh. with it. <laughs> you were right there in, in, in the middle of the Broadway area. And, and that was useful. Um, I, I was living in my grandparents' apartment. My grandparents had this classic six room apartment on Washington square. Mm. Um, and because my, my grandfather was was well to do. My grandmother recently died. My grandfather found the place too, and it was filled with too many memories for him. So he was living with my mother out in New Jersey. Mm. Um, and so I was living in this six-room apartment. My best friend from from college came to New York and he was he went to law school and after a month he quit to come to New York to be an actor. So he <laughs> to New York and join me. And the two of us lived there in this, you know, unbelievable six-room apartment over Washington Square. So I didn't have to make money for rent, but I didn't have to you know, buy groceries. So I had a job as a ticket broker at Golden LeBlanc, um, Golden Pen Theater Tickets. It was in the uh, back in the days when uh, the Helen Hayes Theater and the, and the Morosco and before they were torn down next to them was this little theater ticket agency called Golden LeBlanc. And uh, we had little theater desks in every hotel all the big hotels in, um, in New York. And people will come up to the theater desk and say, I'd like to get tickets for a, a show. What do you have? And they would say, we have, we have blah, 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 blah. And then the theater desk would call us at this office. And we would say, we don't have anything for that. And we would be sitting around this table with a, with a like lazy Susan of, of, of theater tickets on for various shows and in slots and everything. And, uh, so that's what I did for like, you know, four hours a day. Consequently, I was able to get, you know, comped and do off-Broadway shows. So I saw a bunch of shows down at the Mercer Arts Center, you know, uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest with Danny DeVito and uh, Dr. Sullivan's Magic Circus and a bunch of other things that were, you know, around at the time. Was your interest in both plays and musicals at this time? Did you prefer one over the other, you know, one genre of, of, of theater? No, I didn't. I mean, I had done, I had done both plays and musicals in high school and in college, mm-hmm. like all acting students, I went to acting school and I thought, well, I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm a serious actor and I'm going to do, you know, Chekhov and, and, and Williams and, and Miller and Shakespeare and whatever. Mm-hmm. And you, you get out and you realize, oh, there's no money in that. Um, <laughs> and so I ended up doing musicals. So, uh, but I've done both during my career. So right. that's right. also nice. I, I enjoyed both. I mean, I, I, I enjoy telling the story. I enjoy having a character that goes someplace. I enjoy having a catharsis as a, as a person and an actor on stage um, and, you know, engendering such in, in an audience, we hope. There is something about musicals where, I mean, music can take you places where just words can't. Um, so that's that's wonderful. And I enjoy doing that. Do you remember the first Broadway show you ever saw? The first Broadway ever show I ever saw was I Never Sang for My Father with Hal Holbrook. 
Oh my gosh. Um, and I was up and, you know, plastered to the back wall of the second balcony, something like that. You know, it wasn't one of these things where I thought, oh yes, that's what I want to do. No, it's just, mm-hmm. okay, so I'll play. I had, I had seen, you know, plays before. My father used to do community theater. I can remember seeing yeah. him play oh. Major Metcalf in, in The Mousetrap. Oh. So, you know, I, I had some sense of acting as a thing people did, you know, um, not for money necessarily, but um, it sounds like your family was supportive of you going into this, this world. Is that correct? Um, Okay. I can remember when I got uh, the lead, I played Sid Sorokin in the pajama game in in, in high school. I came home and told my mother and she said, Oh, and you you have songs. I said, yeah, I have five songs. She said, really? (laughs) Because (laughs) she didn't think I could sing. Uh, (laughs) uh, I got a bunch of scholarships to go to Harvard, but my dad paid for the rest of the, uh, um, the tuition, which was, in today's, I mean, it, it was tuition, books, and whatever totaled about five thousand a year back then. Oh. Um, but after I, you know, I left Harvard, I went off to Circle in the Square, and my dad was like, ah, "You know, I just paid for this. You're going to throw all that." What? And then he saw me do uh, Kilroy and Camino Real, Tennessee Williams Camino Real, and my dad came and saw it, and he said, "Afterwards, I think you made the right choice." When you graduate from Circle in the Square. Did they do any sort of, you know, showcase to help you meet agents or did you have to just start pounding the pavement on your own? No, just you know, went out and looked for stuff on, on your own. Once I graduated, um, I got a job in summer stock making up to $70 a week. Up to? <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, yeah, if you, if you were playing the lead, you got $70 a week. If you're playing, uh, you know, a course, you got $35 a week. Um, and where was this summer stock? This was in Allentown, Pennsylvania. It was a oh, one-year wow. thing, played for just one year. It was called Crackersport. And then uh, I came back to New York after that. And then I, I went to an audition for for Greece. Um, and, you know, I was, what, number 8 billion and 45 or whatever. Mm-hmm. And as I handed my um, sheet music or whatever to the piano player, the piano player stood up and turned to the um, auditioner and said, I saw this fellow. This summer, play Paul in Carnival. He was wonderful. Oh. But, you know, but they put down their sandwiches and they sort of like, you know, leap through the, found my, you know, picture and resume and they listened to me. And then um, they sang my my number and then Pat Birch came up and put me through some moves or whatever. And uh, and I got my first equity job, which was covering Danny Zuko and three other roles in a touring production of uh, of Grease. Remember what you yeah. sang? For the audition, by any chance, or what were your, or even what your go-to songs were when you made the rounds? Her face. I used to sing her face, you know, from Carnival. Oh, great! So, yeah, so that was my that was my first equity job, and I got my equity card, and uh, you know, I actually went on a couple of times, Mm -hmm. Um, and I came back to New York, and I got cast in a tour of seventeen seventy six as Jefferson, um, a national tour. Uh, and I also got cast in a couple of shows up at um, Goodspeed, oh. which was a new musical that they were hoping to take to Broadway called Cowboy. Oh. And the other was an old Jerome Kern chestnut called Very Good Eddie. Sadly, I had a bigger part in Very Good Eddie than I did in the huh. new Broadway-bound musical, Cowboy. But... um. And so armed with these two job possibilities, I took them to Stark Heseltine who was an agent at Hesseltine Baker. And I said, I would like you to negotiate my contract for these, would you? Said, okay, you know, no work on his part. Sure, he'll take a look at these things. And he's, he 
Broadway, no Broadway, the production contract minimum at the time was $325. And he said, the most I can get you for the tour is $350. So, so you'll, you'll earn less than minimum when you include my uh, commission. But I think the, the, the better thing for you to do is do this thing up at, up at Goodspeed, which will pay you slightly less. But maybe the show, this cowboy thing will come in and, you know, you'll be seen by people and keep you close to New York. So I took the, uh, the Goodspeed job and cowboy did not come to New York, <laughs> but very good. Eddie was a big hit up there. And finally, in the last you know couple of weeks, David Merrick came up and David Merrick agreed to uh, produce the thing. <laughs> so um, so we went to New York. Uh, and we opened in December of 1975 at the Booth Theater, and so Charlie Rapley and Virginia Seidel were two stars of this thing, and they were uh, they were wonderful. Our listeners love obscure shows, so I'm going to ask you, Nick, what was Cowboy or Cowboys about? Cowboy. Um, it was about um, Frederick Russell, the uh, cowboy artist. It had some wonderful music, and but you know the the, the plot was sort of like. Eh. Didn't really grab you where you, I don't, I don't know what the hell the, the conflict was. I mean, you know. <laughs> so that's what that one was about. Okay. Good to know. Yeah. Good to know. So obscure listeners out there. If you, if you love, if you love an obscure show, find, find a score to cowboy. Why do you think very good Eddie was so successful? Cause this was at a time when we had things like a chorus line and Chicago and, and all of Sondheim shows. Why did this little <laughs> chestnut succeed? Yeah. B- B- Bill, Bill Guile was I think nominated for a Tony for best direction. And the other three nominees were Hal Prince for Pacific Overtures, oh. Bob Fosse for Chicago and Michael, Michael Bennett for a course line. For a course line yeah. Oh, yeah. That's pretty good company. My God. Okay. He's... It was and is an unbelievably charming show. And it was, I mean, beautifully directed by Bill and, and, and wonderfully played by, by Charlie and Virginia who are just, were just like adorable. And it had this, you know, this quaint, cute sort of like uh, dancing stuff that, that people did and this old timey sort of plot. And um, and it was funny uh, and uh, and just charming. It was an adorable little Valentine of, of a show. And, and, you know, if you wanted a, a sweet, good time in, in, in the theater, you had a great time there. You know, it wasn't breakthrough or, or you know, or, or challenging, certainly. You know, it was just, mm. it was just fun. Nick, what do you look for out of a director? For you, what's the ideal actor-director relationship? Um, I, you want someone who creates a safe space, you know, who is supportive, uh, who you know, makes you feel like, you know, if I try something, I'm not going to be eviscerated for, you know, for ruining a mm-hmm. show. You want someone who... Uh, it's not going to like call you out in front of the, the rest of the cast. I'd like to have somebody who's listens to my point of view. I'd like somebody who has a sense of humor. <laughs> it, you know, it's, it's, it's mostly about creating a good atmosphere in the room where you feel safe, where you feel like we're having fun. We're having a good time and we're supported and we're all this together. And it's a family atmosphere and, and, and we're working together and, and we're doing what we can. Um, you know, it, it helps if you've got, Somebody who's, you know, really insightful about the character and the period and that sort of stuff helps if you have somebody who's like, you know, a comic genius who has great bits for you to do. I still remember John Carey when I was doing uh, Les Miserables and the Trinardiers break into the uh, wedding and they're about to make their getaway having stolen the silver and uh, it falls on the floor and John gave me the bit where 
you look at it on the floor and then look up at the ceiling. And see, oh my God, it must have fallen from the sky. Um, yes. Now, let me ask you, how do you deal in a situation where you and the director are not on the same page? How do you, how do you get through that? Ultimately, I'm there at the service of the playwright and the director. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm there to serve their vision. And if my vision is not the same as their vision, well, then I need to sort of like, you know, put my vision aside and, and, and do their vision. I mean, sometimes if you're really convinced that, no, this is the way this, this has to go sort of thing, you can try and edge things towards y- your ideas, but it's, it's, it's not my show. Mm. It's never my show when I'm, when I'm the actor, you know, it's the, the playwrights or the directors, if you will. And, you know, frequently um, I have a exalted opinion of, you know, of my opinion yeah. and it's, it's not always correct. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there, there are times when I think, you know, oh, this is the way it's supposed to go. And no, it's not. That's that's, mm. that's not helpful, Nick. It's actually, you know, so I try and be humble and just, you know, do what the director wants. As an actor, what is your process in creating a character if there is a process? Do you sit down and go, okay, beat for beat, here's what's happening? Or do you instinctually go into rehearsal, feel it out? How do you like to work? I think I have a conceptual sense of what the play is about and where this character fits in, who this character is and what the character wants and what the purpose of this character is, blah, blah, blah. And there's a certain sort of, for whatever psychological, you know, childhood reasons, I have an ability to sort of suss out what people expect or want. You know, I think it was the fact that I moved 10 times by the time I was 10 years old and I sort of like, you know, so I was always in a new classroom, a new school system. And so I had to figure out, okay, the way things go here is, you know, and this is what I need to be doing it, you know, and stands being good said taking tests. I'm, I'm a killer test taker. I mean, because I know what the test person wants is an answer. So I can give you that. So I'm very good at giving you the, the obvious choices, which makes me a nice mediocre actor. Um, no. and you, you try, I try and move beyond that. But, uh, because what I admire in, in other actors is bold choices mm-hmm. and things that are, you know, surprising right. um, and truthful. And I think uh, what, I, what I look for is, you know, what's going on before a scene starts. Like, you know, where's that actor coming from, that character coming from? And I look for the forks in the road, the changes of direction in, in a scene where um, you're heading one way and then some, something happens and you're heading a different way. Mm-hmm. Or something happens and it sets off some emotional reaction in you, so you you know instead of being friendly now you're angry or whatever. Um, so that's the stuff I look for. Do yeah. you like to do table work, or is that something you'd rather just get on your feet and experiment? No, I thought, I, I enjoy doing doing table work. I don't want to do table work for a week and a half. It's useful because you can get ahead of yourself if you're just you know up on your feet uh, and doing things and it's it's much easier when you're at the table to, to stop and say why do i say that i mean that's, that doesn't seem to follow what the other person said i mean did you or do we know do we know what the relationship did, these guys have you know, all those questions that you ask the playwright or the director so yeah no i enjoy doing table work but not for an extended period of time because i know there are some rehearsals and where at a certain point i get bored and i want to move get up on my feet and yeah. start like making create yeah. Now, tell us a little bit about how Phantom of the Opera came into your world. Well, I got an audition to play one of the uh, managers, and uh, they wanted to hear an aria, an operatic aria. Oh. So I prepared um, Eritu from uh, Umbalo Mascara, 
Mm-hmm. And I sang that. And then they called me back and had me prepare the uh, prima donna, the, mm-hmm. you know, the intro to prima donna and, and prima donna. And, you know, the, the, the managers could be 25, they could be 55, right. they could be 65, um, you know, and they need to be sort of baritones. But other than that, they don't need to be like, you know, right. unbelievable basses or unbelievable tenors. They just, you know, so it's like, you just need two guys. <laughs> right. So it's, like, you know, it's like, you know, they must, they, they, they had their, they had their pick of 4,000, you know, equity actors in New York. You know, and somehow they, I got in the winnowing down part of it now part of it was because and i think a large part in my favor was that i replaced uh kevin klein as bruce grant in on the 20th century so i worked with hal before and for the most part hal picked a bunch of people that he had worked with before but anyhow it was me and 30 or 40 of the you know top you know leading men character men whatever in in new york at the royale theater auditioning and they would mix and, and match us and i did some some funny stuff with my uh, my thing, sort of like you know, getting down on a knee and pulling the other Andre down to a knee with me to you know, plead with the prima donna. And, and Hal liked it. And they started, when in the mixing and matching, he became Wyman and, you know, so-and-so Wyman and, you know, so-and-so. And eventually became Wyman Gromadol. And it was it was cool because it was a huge, you know, hit in, in London. And we knew it was going right. to be a huge hit here. And it was somewhat discouraging. Cameron McIntosh, New people wanted to do it, so he was offering, you know, I'll give you 45 cents to do the show. Um, uh-huh. <laughs> you know, so I was like disgruntled. That, um, and he also wanted to pay Chris Grondahl and me the same amount. Insisted mm. on that, said that you know, you, two managers they get the same amount. It's a, it's favored nations with the other manager. You have to you have to have the same amount. And I'm going to bill you as uh, you have the same billing, but because Chris Grondahl comes before. Gromendahl comes before Wyman. It'll be Chris Gromendahl, Nicholas Wyman. And I thought, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> he's, you know, he's done like, you know, two shows. I've done like, you know, eight shows on, on, on Broadway. And, you know, and, and I've, I've, done, I've done films, you know, I've done television. And they would say, yes, but he's done, he's worked with the New York City Opera and, and he's done, you know, recordings. And I'm like, no, okay, so <laughs> no, I'm like, oh, come on, come on, come on. Nick Wyman's bigger than him. No. That's that's the billing, and that's the money. Well, so I'm not. I'm, I won't do it. Chris Moore said, "Okay, I'll take, I'll take that money, whatever." Mm-hmm. One, it was like twelve fifty a, a, a week. And I thought, I'm not going to take that. No, you tell them it has to be at least I don't know what fifteen hundred or seventeen fifty or something like this. Um, yeah. So eventually, they came up to, uh, to to my figure and raised. So so I I helped Chris Groendahl get another two hundred fifty bucks or whatever a week. Oh, nice! But, but, but you got to look around when later on um, they asked Chris to to understudy Raoul. Oh, Chris said, "Okay, I'll do it, but I'm not going to do it for free. You have to give me another hundred bucks." So they gave him another hundred bucks, and I got another hundred bucks. So. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so there we go. Oh That's- my gosh, That's great. Hello, this is Eartha. When life is not monotonous, it is lovely, especially when I listen to Behind the Curtain, Broadway's Living Legends, starring the Batman and Boy Wonder of podcasts. That's Rob and Kevin David to you. I head over to patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N, and give generously to them. Don't give it to Ladybird. Don't give it to me. Give it to the boys, or you'll regret it. 
when it ends. Patreon is perfect. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. When did you first get involved with Actors' Equity in, in terms of a board position, in terms of being on the governing council, and why did you want to move into that world? Um, it actually uh, was around the time of, of Phantom of the Opera. At the time, Cameron McIntosh wanted to bring Michael Crawford and Sarah Brightman. He wanted to bring them over as stars. Well, Michael Crawford acted up. He said, fine, he's a star. Sarah Brightman, no, she is not a star. And uh, <laughs> Cameron McIntosh was like, she is the wife of a guy who wrote it. <laughs> and no, no, she's not a star. You know, and, and there was this like pissy attitude about yes. Sarah Brightman because people who had seen her thought, oh, she's not very good. The same as she's sort of a simp and you know, blah, blah, blah. Um, so they didn't want to bring her over as a star. And there were <laughs> two categories at the time where you could bring somebody over. One was they are star and H1. The other was they are H2. They are someone of extraordinary particular abilities. Oh. Well, I think being the wife of the composer is an extraordinary, you know, <laughs> they should have taken that as the, uh, but they didn't. And Hal Prince went and appealed to the, to the actors equity council who turned him down. And wow. <laughs> I think this day, Hal feels a little miffed that, you know, that, he came and was so gracious and they said, now, nah. so Cameron uh, McIntosh was making noises about, you know, I'll, then I'll just, you know, I'll, I'll take it to Toronto instead of New York and, uh, you know, and the hell with you guys. Right. And yeah. I, and when I heard this, I had already been cast. I was like, well, wait, whoa, whoa, whoa. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, no, I'm not going to run. I, I need this. And so I began to think, well, who are these people who are like messing with my livelihood here? Right. So I, I wanted to know. So I joined the production contract committee and I joined the alien committee. And Patrick Quinn at the time, who was right. just a counselor, said, you know, you should you should run for council. We need more working actors on, on council. So I ran for council and was elected. And I served on council for like another, I don't know, 20 odd years uh, before I became president. And that's how I got involved. And, uh, and it's a way of, you know, of being of service, of doing service, you know, being useful to my fellow actors. And for Actors' Equity, what does a council member do? What did you do for those 20 years? Right. Uh, at the time, we used to meet, I think, two or three times a month. Like mm -hmm. like just about every Tuesday, we would meet, um, have a council meeting about what was going on. And, and you would rule on various uh, requests to, you know, 
waive a, a particular rule. Um, you would validate, vet, whatever, you know, uh, some contract that had been negotiated. Lots of things were ruled on by council at the time that have since become part of the, uh, you know, the, the local regional councils. Do you remember the most contentious thing or the most controversial thing that came across, you know, your desk in the 20 years, not as president, but as, as part of the governing council? Yeah, it was, it would have been uh, a similar thing with the alien issue of Jonathan Price. Jonathan over as a star. So you were um, there for that. Okay. And Jonathan Price, I see him in comedians. He was brilliant in this show comedians on, on Broadway. And I think, I think he won a Tony. Um, so he, he, he basically fulfilled the, whatever the requirements were for being a, a star. I mean, he wasn't a name in the sense that, that no one in Kansas or Indiana, or whatever, was going to come to New York to see Jonathan Price. But he was a, you know, in, in terms of this alien issue, he was a star, but he wasn't Asian. And the character is supposed to be, you know, Eurasian. And we wanted them to consider, indeed, hire somebody of um, Asian American ancestry. Cameron McIntosh was like, no, this is the guy. He's like, won awards. He's brilliant at this role. I want him in this role. So Actors' Equity is sort of in a vote of solidarity with actors of color and particularly Asian American actors refused and said, no, we're, we're not going to admit him as a star. And Cameron McIntosh called their bluff and said, well, then fine. I won't, I won't bring the show. Up. And wow. then the actors actually rather, you know, humiliatingly had to go back and then revote and allow him in. The, the, the thought process, I mean, my thought process at the time was, I mean, I voted, no, don't, don't let him in because I knew well, Cameron McIntosh will just appeal this, and he's yeah. going to win the appeal in a walkover. I mean, it's clearly a case where Jonathan Price qualifies. But we will have, you know, taken our, our moral stand, our ethical stand, or whatever, in solidarity with our, you know, our Asian-American brothers and, uh, and you know, fought the good fight, but we lost. Cameron McIntosh was too smart for that. He, he called yeah. our bluff, and we had to, like, you know, crawl back to the table and say, okay, 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 you can bring him. And so that was... I mean, we, we looked bad on every conceivable way. I mean, we looked bad to the Asian Americans because we said yes. And we looked bad to the producers and the, because we were trying to, you know, stop the show from coming over. I mean, it just, it was a mess. A lose-lose situation. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Then what prompted you from going on these committees to being the president? In 2006, Alan Eisenberg retired um, and we needed a new um, executive director. And Patrick Quinn put his hat in the ring to become executive director. And after, you know, a few votes of other people said, yeah, he'd be a good executive director. I have no idea whether it would have been a good one or not, but um, he was, you know, elected, whatever, by, by council. And consequently, Mark Zimmerman, the uh, first vice president, became president. Um, and before he could actually take over as executive director, tragically, Patrick died of a heart attack. And so we had sort of like a, a triumvirate of, of executives working as executive director for a year. And we hired a guy named John Connolly, a very good buddy of Mark Zimmerman's, um, to be executive director. Um, and John had been uh, active in, in AFTRA politics and, uh, and he was, you know, a savvy guy. And so Mark and John were, you know, a, a close team for uh, two or three years there. And then in 2009, when John's Connolly's uh, contract was up for renewal, uh, council did not renew his contract. And Mark felt that he had personally pushed for John at the time and had pushed for him to be, you know, uh, re-upped. And he felt, you know, sort of 
disregarded by counsel. So he he quit. And Paige Price, who was the first vice president, she became president. And we had an election the next year for um, for equity president to find the new president. Paige was at the same time artistic director of this theater, Theater Aspen out in mm-hmm. Colorado, and felt like whether it was or not, it certainly looked like a conflict of interest. So I thought somebody else should be president. Looking around the room, I thought, you know, probably should be me. <laughs> um, so I threw my hat in the ring and, uh, and I was, you know, tabbed by the nominating committee and I ran, and I, I was elected and I served for five years. But I mean, it was, I had never had the um, ambition to be president. I mean, I, you know, I thought, you know, that Mark would be president for, you know, I don't know, 15 years or something. And then, then one of the other guys would be president, you know, I'd just be the sort of class clown counselor in the back row of the room. What does the president do for Actors' Equity? Ah, uh, he is the figurehead. You know, the, we, you have an executive director who does all the, like, running the... Right. The, the, the business. The, the staff, and who, you know, negotiates contracts. The president serves, you know, on most committees, is, is on the, you know, frequently on, on negotiating committees, serves as the representative of the, of the union and to press... Um, to other people in, in the industry is the uh, the person that you know um, members go to with complaints and issues and whatever. I mean, Patrick was first vice president for you know, almost twenty years. Yeah, eighteen years. No, no, twelve years. Something like that. Anyhow, uh, he served as first vice president under a number of presidents who were um, under Colleen Dewhurst and uh, Ellen Burstyn and Ron Silver and. And other and these people, you know, famous actors were like were not involved in the day to day, you know, whatever. Patrick would be there doing stuff, but right. they weren't. But when Patrick was president, and when I was president, that that was that was the person there doing all the all the stuff. So I would be generally be you know in the office almost every day, um, responding to emails. I mean, got thousands of emails, and dealing with issues that that came up for folks. I would be you know, you chair the board meetings as as the president. You serve on the Board of Trustees of the uh, of the Pension Health Committees. Right. Was it hard juggling your acting career while still taking on this new role as you know a more political slash business side? You know, were you able to still focus on acting? Well, I mean, I I continued to work. I didn't right. work as much as I had before, and I don't know whether that was a chicken and egg thing or right. whether just a coincidence. I don't know. Uh, I don't think I was blackballed in any way for no. being the president. It, it may have taken some of my focus away from. Preparing auditions. Yeah, that makes sense. So, um, from what years did you serve? From 2000? 2010 to 2015. Okay. So, what were some of the things that at the end of your presidency you were proudest of? I was proud of, I wrote a, a monthly column for the Equity News. Mm-hmm. And some of those things are in this book, this Climbing Rejection Mountain, that I thought were useful approaches to um, you know the membership in terms of championing championing them and uh, and reminding them to, to keep going not to get uh, discouraged um i mean i explained things like touring the whole um uh, in the early 2000s equity had broken its longtime policy of having you know one contract and one contract only for touring that was the production contract um to having this short engagement touring agreement and uh and then tiering the production contract. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I you know, wrote a couple of columns explaining 
the logic behind this and how this works and how this made sense both for the producers and for the actors that we had what we had done was not like taking you know these production jobs and made them into these lower paying jobs we had taken these non-union jobs and made them into lower paying union jobs yeah um i was also very proud of uh, uh the year 2013 was our centennial year mm-hmm. and uh i went around the country and i spoke at every one of our at a centennial celebration at any one every one of our 30 or so um liaison cities and uh, i thought it represented the the actor as well Sorry. No, you did. From uh, Kevin and I are both members of Actors Equity, and yeah. very proud of your administration and everything that you did. You know, one of the things that gets asked a lot, I think, amongst actors is: Is there ever going to be a point where Equity also goes under the SAG-AFTRA umbrella? Now that they're together, what are your thoughts on that? I've always thought that it should be the Canadian model that you should have screen actors on one side and live actors on the other, that you would have SAG and AFTRA together on one side, and you would have equity and AGBA and AGVA together on the other side, that that um, people who do live shows, live. whether it's in opera or on you know Broadway or in cabaret or on cruise ships or whatever, that they would all be together. In England, you have a model where everybody's in the same union. British equity covers everything. And historically, I have thought that's not a good model for us because what film and TV and radio are about is money on both sides of the the table. It's about money. And historically, you know, equity and stage things on on the other side of the table that you had these producers who, you know, cared about money, but they they really wanted to, you know, put on a great show and everything. And you have the, the actors who are like, you know, I don't need to be paid. I just want to work. You know, as you have this issue in Los Angeles that caused such havoc. And I feel that in the universe of SAG-AFTRA, that Broadway would still get, um, you know, represented. That, you know, maybe, you know, Lord Theatres, maybe Off-Broadway, but all those little small professional theaters that, you know, that are paying people like, you know, 250 $280, $300 a, a week that you know serve as a way to somehow get your actors your working week so you can get you know health coverage and that would be like yeah we don't care about that shit that the members would not be represented well mm. the members i think feel that you know sag after is powerful and equity is weak and that if we had a powerful union then we would get you know i think the powerful union is going to think well it's not worth our time it's not worth you know it's not worth the manpower to spend you know to assign you know, these these staff members to work on these these little tiny contracts. You know, if you wanted to go there, you know, I think it would not serve the members well. I, I think SAG Africa is about commerce and equity is about art, if you will. You know, mm-hmm. um, and uh, and I think those low paying contracts would not, and the members in general would not be well represented. Now, were you? Pre- please forgive my ignorance. Were you president during the Los Angeles showcase contract? Yes, that is why I'm no longer president. Oh, oh, I'm sorry, Nick. I was I was going to well, ask I was going to ask you to expand on what exactly that was, so future generations can have an understanding of it. You could write a book about this. You could have you know ten podcasts about this. Great. Well, okay. Basically, what you have is historically Actors' Equity has been a New York centric union. Indeed, up until sometime in the early '80s, I would say um, it was just New York. Um, and then you had a Western Regional Council, 
and then a, a central regional council added. Up until then, you had you know just these advisory boards that would like you know offer some point of view from these. But who cares about that shit? Because it's all about New York. But it is still very much about the business is very much centered in New York. The actors who who work in all these regional theaters they're generally hired out of New York. It's not necessarily you know useful or appropriate or right for the actors who live in Detroit and and, and Dallas and 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 Louisville or you know whatever um, Seattle. But that's that's how it is. Uh, I have always been somebody who tried to like champion the actors who who, who choose to live for whatever reason in, in other places. At a certain point, we were told by our legal counsel that our approach to theater in L.A. was probably illegal, that allowing some theaters to pay their actors, you know, this little gas mileage stipend, seven bucks a show or whatever, um, and then making other theaters pay $350 or $400 a week wasn't kosher. You know, you can't do that. And that members could sue for uh, for back pay that and that that actors were working for you know for less than minimum wage um and that we stood to lose a lot of money unless we changed our um our rules and i'm not a lawyer and this whole issue occupies a somewhat gray area i mean there are people on the other side who are firmly convinced that 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 legal opinion was wrong and that we could have continued in the same way. That may be true. I don't know. Um, but we tried to carve out uh, exceptions. Um, we tried to create a, a runway, a pathway towards paid work for actors in Los Angeles so that you would have all these gradations and, and steps towards being able to, to make money doing work in L.A., we carved out exceptions where if you wanted to get together with a bunch of your friends and do a show, fine, not a problem. If you wanted to work in a theater that would have 50 seats or less, not a problem. Um, if you wanted to, uh, and then, you know, at my insistence, they, they carved out this thing for membership companies. That if you wanted, if you were part of a membership group company, whatever, they, you could work with that membership group company without having to, you know, get an mm-hmm. equity contract. But the thing that this all this ran up against is the fact that, People who are in L.A. are not in L.A. to do theater. They are in L.A. to become TV stars or to make a living doing television. Maybe they, they make a living doing film, too. But it's mostly it's a TV city. That's what it's all about. And if they got a TV gig, an episodic or, God forbid, a pilot, they did not want to be tied down to an equity contract. <laughs> right. They wouldn't be able to say, hey, I got an episode of, of you know, of, of Manix next week. I'm out of here. So they didn't want, you know, they're happy to have the money, but they didn't want to be tied down to a contract. Um, and that, I mean, for instance, the Antius Theater Company deals with this by double casting every one of their shows. So that when somebody gets a job, they just leave and the other person takes over. So this caused a huge stink because it was going to put a bunch of theaters out of business. Their business model meant they didn't pay the actors. And that's how they were able to pay their, you know, their executive, their artistic directors and blah, 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 and frequently their directors, their lighting designers, their costume designers, their set designers. It was only the actors who weren't getting paid because um, the actors didn't want, the actors you know, were happy to have the chance to like work on stage and exercise their muscles and everything, but they, but they wanted to be able to drop at any time and, and go off to this. So we were setting up a thing where they were going to, that was going to be lost to them. They were going to have fewer opportunities to work and it made them unhappy, made them very unhappy. And despite, you know, 
my best efforts to explain this to him that, uh, without getting into the, the legal ramifications, which of course more was behind this because he couldn't say that because he wants you that cat's out of the bag, then <laughs> then people are suing us and we're, oh, we're yeah. beginning. So it was it was a mess exacerbated by the attitude of a bunch of people, a number of whom went on to serve as officers of the union in New York, who said, you know, hey, look, if they, you know, if they don't want to be paid for their work, then let them, let them leave the union. Let them, who cares about them? A very unpleasant attitude towards um, towards our members. So it, it took effect um, and it remains that way today. You know, I have stepped away from, from equity, so I don't know exactly where things stand now, but I mean, that is the membership companies, such as Antias, continue to work Theaters that that work under this fifty seats or less thing, and there are theaters that you know that pay actors. There aren't that many more. Maybe there are a couple more, but I mean, it's, you know, it has not been like a, a windfall of paying opportunities for actors in Los Angeles. You know, that is, it remains to this day. I mean, a place where you go to try and get TV work. You know, one of the things that's come up recently with Equity, and I'd lo- I'd love your your opinions and thoughts on it if you're willing to share, is the changing of the EMC model to where it used to be 50 points, right? And then it became 25 points, I think. And now it's just, you can join the union if you've got some sort of proof that you've been paid to be an actor at some point in your career. What are your thoughts on that? I'm not really up on that. So you you may know more than I do about, about, about where, where it stands. Initially, the idea was to sort of, you know, create this sort of journeyman sort of thing yes. where actors yeah. would like, you know, learn their their craft through experience, through you know, working with other experienced actors. I think there's something to be said for that. There are those, you know, who have advocated over, over the years, you know, just open the membership to anybody and we will dry up the market. You know, they will force everybody to have to deal with, with equity. Well, no, <laughs> you can open. You're always going to have people who don't want to pay the whatever it is, you know, initiation or thinking, well, I can still work with this thing without paying that initiation thing. And I don't need equity representing. I mean, there are people in all sorts of walks of life and various, uh, you know, jobs who don't want to join unions um, for whatever reason. And the number of people who want to be actors versus the number of jobs is so out of scale. So, I mean, as it is with 52,000 equity members, 17,000 of whom work in any given year. So one third of the member, two thirds of the membership don't work at all in any given year at all. And of those 17,000 that actually do work, about half of them work enough to get some sort of health insurance. So really, you know, wacky, disproportionate buyer-seller sort of market. Um, And you do do not address that. In fact, you make it worse by, you know, letting everybody else into the union. What you do is you create, you know, Tens of thousands more unemployed, unhappy equity members. I don't see that as that solves the problem. So I, I I don't know the rationale behind you know letting anybody into the union who has shown that they have you know been paid money. I think it has mostly to do with trying to address the terrible hit that equity took to its you know coffers during the pandemic. Yeah. I don't know, but that's my guess. Nick, would you just give us just what's like a big thing that you've learned that you know now that you wished you knew when you first started out or that maybe you wished students know as they're beginning their journey? What I've learned is that everybody in the business is insecure. It is a business founded on insecurity. No matter how successful you are, you know, everybody's insecure. So just relax. Just relax. Don't 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 think that, you know, everybody else has all the answers and you're the only one who doesn't really know what's going on. When, when, when you go into an audition, 
and you think, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, I, 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 I hope I don't blow this. You need to know that the people on the other side of the table are thinking, oh my God, oh my God, how am I ever going to find somebody for this spot? I, 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 gee, if I, if I don't get the right person to play this role, you know, they're, they're equally yeah. anxious. So um, just take a deep breath and do your best and let it go. And that's uh, that's all you can do. At what point in your career, Nick, did you think you personally learned that lesson? I, I couldn't I couldn't name a point. I think it's something that's that's come to me over over the years. People such as, you know, I've worked done Broadway shows with Rex Harrison and Richard Dreyfus, and you would think, well, these guys, they yeah. have it all. I mean, you know, that's they and they're they they were both and and just about everybody else. I know, you know were like, you know, anxious as to whether they were going to get this right or not screw up and blah blah blah. You know, it's mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. we are all afflicted with this. You know this fear that we're not going to meet our expectations, other people's expectations, and and uh, it's just you know it's comforting to know that everyone goes through this. Nick, what's next for you besides selling this wonderful book? And once again, folks, if you go into our info description today, you can buy a copy of it. We'll send you the link to buy a copy of it. I don't know. I mean, it's um, the wonderful news is that because I have been fortunate enough to work for you know forty odd years in all sorts of ways. That I have not one, not two, but three defined benefit pensions. Oh, yes. That so okay. money comes into my bank account whether I work or not. I have social security that comes into my bank account so that I can pay my bills whether I work or not. So that's mm-hmm. nice. You know, I spent thirty years on the governing board of Actors Equity, and my wife was sort of an equity widow, and so I have stepped away from that in an effort to like spend more time with her. And that's good. Spend more time yeah. with her. Where did you meet your wife, Nick? I was down in. Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, uh, at the Pittsburgh Public Theater in 1978, and I was doing Lenny at a Bison Men, and the guy playing George uh, and I were there a week early to work on the Lenny George scenes, and then the rest of the cast was coming in. There's only one woman in uh, of Mice and Men, and this is before the age of Google and everything else. So I wanted to meet this woman, and I heard that you know we were all living in this um, renovated old Victorian house that had been broken up into six apartments, and I've heard that she didn't have. Uh, enough light in her apartment. So I grabbed one of my standing lamps. I went downstairs and I knocked on her door and I said, lamp man. And she opened the door and I, I chatted her up. And that was Sunday evening, October 8th, 1978. And I moved in with her on Thursday and we've been together ever since. Ah! Um, <laughs> How beautiful is that? And I said, so every, every October 8th, I celebrate lamp man day. Ah, <laughs> forever the lamp man i love that oh that's uh, amazing nick it has been such a pleasure and joy getting to talk to you today thank you yeah. so much not only for giving us your time but for being a fantastic president and representative of the union that kevin and i are both proud members of oh, so th- no thank you for that um i hope that we get to meet you in person one day to say thank you in person but until then we'll just keep enjoying all the beautiful work you are doing enjoy your time off with your wife because both of you deserve it that is for sure Thank you. Thank you so much. This was lovely. Oh, good. Thank you. All right, friends. Take care. Till next time. Thank you for listening to today's episode. And a big thanks to the punchy players, Jeff Marquis, who is bringing back Lucy, Betty, Judy, and Morda shill for us. And a big thanks to our sound editor, Daniel Schwartzberg, and social media manager, Bethany Ann Selecki. 
And don't forget, we want more folks to hear these incredible stories, and that's where you come in. In order for people to find out about us, we need lots of ratings on iTunes. So head on over to iTunes, search for Behind the Curtain, Broadway's Living Legends, click on our logo, click on ratings and reviews, then write a review and leave us five stars and make us feel as special as Eliza Doolittle on Eliza Doolittle Day. Or you can leave us just one star and you can make us feel as baddie, baddie, bad as Annie did in that really weird production in Boston where Annie dreamt that she was being adopted, but then she ended up back where in the orphanage right back where she started yeah true story rob saw it yes and it was batty it was bizarre i was there i was oh god so head on over to itunes and make us feel even more special than we already do Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.